Love and marriage, the song goes. You just heard it. You can't have one without the other. But is that really true? I know it's not, and I'm betting so do you. I, for one, have known plenty of loveless marriages. Some of them were even long-lasting relationships that worked. They were based on healthy other things, mutual respect, common goals, or obedience to an authority outside of the union. But love, at least love of the romantic sort, wasn't there. I've also known plenty of relationships based soundly in love that made for horrible marriages. There are plenty of people who love each other, romantically even, who should not be married to one another. I can't be the only person in this room who knows people better suited to a loving friendship than to marriage. And I've known plenty of relationships full of love that can or won't ever evolve into marriage. Leaving aside the question of legality for a moment, I know plenty of people who have chosen not to get married. Every couple or even committed group of more than two people has their own reasons. But many people I know express ambivalence about or even hostility to the very institution of marriage, which to me raises the question of what that institution really is in the first place. Is it an institution based in love, as so many would want us to believe? Does it have other dimensions to it, dimensions other than love, perhaps deeper, perhaps even theologically relevant to us, whether or not we are married or will ever be? You might be able to guess what my answer is to that second question, but you might be surprised to learn my answer to the first. But I'm getting ahead of myself. E.J. Graff, in her book, What is Marriage For?, Trace the shifting nature of the institute of marriage in Western history. Quote, when you've listened mainly to the American shouting matches over whether the death of Ozzie and Harriet is good or bad, it's disorienting to discover the depth and variety in marriage's historical shifts, Graf writes. Although people throughout history have been sure that they'd know a marriage when they saw one, its exact borders have been so slippery as to garner thousands of pages of commentary from lawyers, scholars, rabbis, and monks. She continues, Marriage, in other words, turns out to be a kind of Jerusalem, an archaeological site on which the present is constantly building over the past, letting history's many layers twist and tilt in today's walls and floors. Graf found that at various points in history, the institution of marriage has been about the transfer of property rights, especially when women were viewed as part of the property to be transferred. The ability to define who is and is not part of your extended family. The creation of children so that one society can survive. And even the choosing of a lifelong work partner with whom one could survive in an environment dependent upon shared and compatible labor, like farming or the various skilled trades of old. Only recently has love even been part of the equation. Graf writes that marriage transformed dramatically in the 19th century. With capitalism, marriage stopped being the main way that the rich exchanged their life's property and that the rest of us found our life's main co-worker. 
She continues, that change, the death of traditional marriage, which had dropped ill in the mid-18th century and breathed its last by the 1920s, was so dramatic that it set off changes in every other philosophy of marriage. What makes sex sacred or even acceptable? What children need to grow up well? How far in or out of one's kinship circle people are expected or allowed to marry? What marriage rules are required to keep social order? And how important it is to consult your own heart? Now, Graf eventually concludes that modern-day marriage is all about love and uses this conclusion to make a powerful argument for marriage equality. And while I might agree with her conclusions about who, and who, should, who should and should not legally be allowed to marry, I think she's actually missed the mark when it comes to what marriage is about. Certainly, love is a part of it, or it should be at least, But I don't believe that love is enough for a marriage, or even the basis on which it's founded. Lebanese-American poet Khalil Gibran famously famously wrote in his work, The Prophet, Love one another, but make not a bond of love. Let it rather be a moving sea between the shores of your souls. If love is not to be the bond that holds people together, something else has to be. What, after all, makes marriage different from just being in a good, stable relationship? To answer this, I think it's first good to look at the qualities that make up healthy relationship without the layer of marriage thrown onto it. And for this, I think a good resource is the Lifespan Sexuality Education Curriculum, co-written by the Unitarian Universalists and the United Church of Christ, Our Whole Lives is taught in religious education programs in most Unitarian Universalist congregations, and it's very good and thorough about defining healthy relationships for our children and our youth. And according to that curriculum, a healthy sexual relationship is consensual, non-exploitative, mutually pleasurable, safe, developmentally appropriate, based on mutual expectations and caring, and respectful, including the values of honesty and keeping commitments made to others. And that's a nice list, isn't it? A good and comprehensive list for what makes a basic relationship a basic, healthy relationship. Now, throw in love for one another and you have a pretty good relationship there, but you don't have a marriage. As someone who's been performing weddings for some nine years, since as a student minister I was given permission to officiate at my brother's wedding, I'm often asked about the different parts of a wedding ceremony. Specifically, a lot of couples seeking to be married or asking me to bless their union, in the case that legal marriage is not available to them, they want to know what parts of the ceremony are required and what parts of the ceremony are optional. It might surprise you to know that I've helped design wedding ceremonies that lasted anywhere from 10 minutes to almost an hour. Now, those longer ones were layered with meaningful and very optional parts of a wedding ceremony. So what goes into the 10-minute wedding ceremony? (laughs) Only the required parts. My declaration that our intent in gathering is to marry the people before me, the declaration of each party that it is their intent to get married, 
their definition of what that marriage means and my pronouncement of their marriage. Four things, ten minutes. Those middle two parts, the parts done by the people being married, are the most important ones. I never have to ask people to pledge their love for one another, nor is it required that they do, though some people choose to. In order to be married, though, they need to say what they mean by marriage. And usually this comes in the form of vows. They often sound something like this. In the presence of these witnesses, I now take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health, in sorrow or in joy, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. You know, as love only sneaks in there at the end. And while not everyone uses these particular vows, vows of some sort are a required part of a marriage ceremony. Why is this? It's because marriage is fundamentally about more than love. It's about creating a covenant. And this is the part that applies to you whether you're married or not, whether you ever will be married or not. Covenant is the sacred way in which people are bound together. It is also the foundation of liberal religion. It is simultaneously a solemn promise and a living document. Covenant is something that we all should understand. The Reverend Dennis McCarty, in a recent article in the UU World magazine, wrote about the theology of covenant from the perspective of religious history and authority. He wrote that a covenantal religion is based on committed faith that people's lives matter, that what happens between human beings here and now matters more than the authority of any particular belief, and that we have it in our power to make the future better than the past. He went on to explain that a covenantal faith like ours is not a theological abstraction. It's a way of living in the world. A covenant with God, such as those made between the ancient people of the Hebrew Bible and their God, calls people into a covenant with one another, into a way of living that sees each human as being created in the image of the divine. McCarty rightly points out that covenant among human beings is the basis for any liberal religion. The sacred agreement on a common ethic for right action rather than the sacred deference to some religious authority which marks more conservative religions. To a religious fundamentalist, McCarty writes, my good works towards my fellow human beings will not save me from eternal punishment I am lost unless I accept the proper religious authority. On the other hand, he continues, a religious liberal's faith centers on the human condition, on ethics, relationship, and faith in the importance of each person. The two kinds of covenants that McCarty talks about, one, on the one hand, the biblical covenants with God, and on the other hand, covenants with other people, they're different sorts of covenants, but the concept remains the same. The main difference being 
that covenants between people are sacred agreements among equals. They can be as narrow or as broad in scope as the people entering into the covenant wish them to be. They can cover how we behave with one another for the duration of a meeting, or they can be a pledge to lifelong relationship. They can be the work of a pair of people or of a group of unlimited size. But any way you look at them, they are our religion's most sacred source of instruction as to how we live, how we treat each other, and the values we hold dear. They're also, unlike the biblical covenants, living contracts. They're not set in stone for all of eternity. Covenants between and among people must be open for renegotiation with the consent of all parties involved. That renegotiation is as sacred a process as the initial creation of the covenant. It ensures that the covenant continues to meet its stated purpose as time goes on. In Unitarian Universalism, our congregations have formed a covenant with one another. This covenant, in the form of seven principles our congregations pledge to affirm and promote, is printed on the back of your order of service each week. But it, too, is a living document. To many people's surprise, our association's governance actually requires a periodic process of review and possible revision of that covenant The vows of marriage, the biggest of the non-optional parts of any wedding ceremony, represent the formation of a covenant. They're a sacred promise to right action in front of witnesses and an officiant. But they, too, must be a living agreement if a marriage is to last. Years into any covenanted relationship, the agreements made at the relationship's beginning fail to account for the complexity of relationship that has developed over time. So those vows need to be re-examined, transgressions reconciled, and promises revised and remade. This is the basis of marriage. Whatever the law says, whatever we'd like to think in our romantic hearts, the understanding that a promise has been made that can survive the ups and downs of life together, a promise that can be strengthened over time, even when it has temporarily been forgotten. The basis of marriage should be covenant. Many relationships aren't meant to have such a promise attached to them. This is fine and good. Those relationships can and should be meaningful and satisfying to everybody involved. But if that promise is there, and if it is real, no law can tell me that marriage is not also there. Love and marriage, they sure are nice together. But you can have love without marriage, or even marriage without love. Marriage requires more than love. It requires covenant. And covenant requires us to see one another as equal as equally worthy, as full participants in the co-creation of our world. And this way of seeing each other, I would argue, is potentially even greater than the romantic love we all want to celebrate in marriage. It's the understanding that you are bound in relationship to another, a mutual and empowering relationship. It is an understanding that we, 
no matter our marital status or relationship history, all come together within this community of faith. This Valentine's Day weekend, I hope that you know that here you are loved, that here you are worthy of that love, and that here in this covenanted community of worshipers together, you are not alone. Go in peace.